Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbarnwell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. Good day to one and all and welcome to this broadcast which is a studio recording of our next segment in the series on the grace of God that we are exploring. Uh, We apologize that the live recording of this segment did not come out too clearly so I elected to do a studio version of the same. This particular session is a follow-on of the previous one wherein we are now beginning to focus on the disposition of humility as key to accessing a greater grace, according to James 4, 6 and 7 and 1 Peter 5 and verse 5. In our last segment, we explored how that the scriptures position humility as a grace attractor grace receptor, a grace recruiter, a grace receiver, and a grace sustainer. So scripture says very clearly that God will resist or oppose the proud, but that he will give grace to the humble. And the scripture says specifically that he gives a greater grace, denoting a specific quality of grace not just more of in terms of quantity, but a particular profound quality of the grace of God that is released to the man or woman who is humble as opposed to being proud. So I just want to continue along the same thought line in this particular broadcast. And our focus is going to be on how that grace attends humility, but that that humility must be expressed and evidenced as obedience. It's obedience that evidences humility. It's obedience that will manifest glory. And specifically, we will look at the example of our Lord Jesus Christ in this broadcast. Now, if God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, what then is the ultimate expression and evidence of humility? The simple answer is obedience. Philippians 2.8 says, He humbled himself. By becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. So it says it very clearly, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. So obedience is the outcome, it's the expression and the evidence of humility. Humility is prerequisite to obedience and the proof of humility is obedience. We can think that we are humble all we want to, but the litmus test of a humble heart is the degree to which you accept, agree with, and actually practice God's principles or His view of things in all aspects, particularly when God's will requires of you a very daring and courageous act of obedience to the point of death unto self. Now, in our prior session, we demonstrated that great grace is given to the humble person where this humility, a lowly disposition of spirit and soul, 
is expressed by the obedience to God and His Word. So I want to stress that the litmus test of a humble heart is the degree to which you are actually compliant with God's Word, the degree to which you are actually obeying the Word of the Lord. Now, God blesses obedience to His Word. His Word contains not just His mind and intelligence, but also His essence, His grace. His grace is the foundational basis upon which everything of His glory rests. His glory is full of grace and truth, truth being His Word. So His words are spirit and life. His Word, like His grace, is spirit. So grace is that immaterial, compositional makeup of God as spirit. And His Word, which is spirit and life, is the means by which that grace is communicated to men. So if inherent within the word of the Lord is grace, the substructure to glory that will manifest, and if the word of the Lord is the primary mode or methodology by which this grace is communicated, if grace is the essence of the, of the composition of God as spirit, and if his words are spirit laden with grace, hence, to access more grace, I have to express my humility by actually obeying that word. Because my obedience to that word will unpack and bring to me the resident grace deposit of God in that word to my spirit. Now, in a prior session, we indicated that the goal of grace Reception is the display of the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord being the exact representation of His nature, which must be visibly shown to men. Thus, it is clear to see that although you receive grace at the instant you hear and receive the Word of God, it is only when you obey the Word that the resident grace inherent within the Word will begin to exhibit the glory or the character of God. Grace is the substructure of glory. Glory is made apparent to an observer when the word in which grace is contained and transported to the hearer is practically obeyed. So a measure of grace might be received through the hearing of the word, but glory put on display is only realized through obedience to that word. So the act of accurately hearing the word of the Lord is critically important. Certain spiritual transactions take place via the means of hearing, the emphasis on hearing the word. For example, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. Faith really is the impartation of the underlying nature of God. The word, the original Greek term is hypostasis. So faith is the impartation of the underlying hypostasis or essence of the very essence of the nature by which God is comprised. That is given to us in the act of hearing. The effect of this is that we develop unswerving confidence and assurance in the capacity of his person and character to do whatever he has determined to accomplish. Also, Jesus told his disciples that they are 
already clean through the words which they hear. He said to them at one stage, now are you clean through the words which I have spoken. So in their hearing, there was a cleansing transaction that takes place via the hearing of the word. So faith comes by hearing, that is the impartation of the essence of God's nature, by hearing. Cleansing comes uh, through the act of hearing the word of the Lord. Now similarly, when I hear God's word, a measure of grace is already imparted to my spirit. Through the act of obedience though, by which I demonstrate ultimate humility, I begin to harness the fullest measure of grace intended to be imparted through that word I heard so that grace transforms to, grow, to glory. The, the resident grace in the word I heard imparted to my spirit as I executed and obey it. Glory, the exact representation of that nature visibly shown to men, can be begin to be put on display. Now remember, grace attends humility. And if obedience is reflective of humility, then although some grace is received in the hearing of the word, the fullest grace potential is activated and becomes ignited to be operational in and through the act of actually obeying the word. Now, remember the whole intent of grace reception through authentic apostolic ministry is widespread obedience. I want to emphasize it. The whole intention of grace reception, grace impartation and subsequent grace reception through authentic apostolic ministry is widespread obedience in whole nations. This is derived from Romans chapter 1 and verse 5. It says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles or all the nations for his name's sake. So notice what Paul says, I've received grace and apostleship. He's speaking obviously here contextually as an apostle. He's speaking in his apostolic office with a consciousness of his, of his call as an apostle. So he says, through whom we, that's we as apostles, we have received two things, grace and apostleship to bring what about? To bring about obedience of faith amongst all the nations. So the intent of grace reception through valid apostolic ministry is obedience in nations. Now for the grace resident within the word of God heard to be practically operative in your life so as to attain its fullest potential outworking, there must be obedience to the word in order to manifest the glory of the Lord. Otherwise, the received grace in the word is received in vain. Paul said that he had not received grace in vain, but that he worked. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 from verse 10 onwards. He says, the grace of God to me was not given in vain, but I worked, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. What's he really saying? Having received grace, I practically did something. Grace was not given in vain. I, re I received grace. Then he says, I worked. I did something. He practically obeyed for him the call of God in his life by doing something. In other words, he obeyed a grace-laden word. And when that grace-laden word that you heard 
It can come, come, it can come via a teaching, a commandment, um, an expectation of God. Every command or word or principle of God you hear is grace-laden, full of grace. When you, it comes to you, grace is received in the act of hearing. But in the act of obedience, you begin to model practically, that is in a visible sense, in your nature, character and lifestyle, behaviorally, you begin to put the glory of God on display, all prompted and propelled by the grace you received resident in the word that you have heard. Now, I demonstrated in the previous session that, that grace attends humility because humility is most powerfully expressed when one can commit the representation of oneself to another party. Now, God is God. God is powerful. God is sovereign. But God is spirit. Spirit cannot be seen. The intent of God was to make his essential nature known and visible in a visible realm. He made man to that end, called man his son, and the conduit of son has got the capacity to reflect, to receive, contain, and reflect the fullness of everything that God is. Now think about it um, for one moment. God is all-powerful, and he can do whatever he chooses to do. But he chose to remain in invisibility and commit the responsibility of his representation to man, which he called my son. Now, that must be the height of humility. Uh, Dr. Sam Solon has said once that the quintessence of humility is when one can commit the representation of yourself to another. And God did that. He gave over the mandate and he put upon the shoulders of men the task of showcasing all that he is as he is to the entire creative order. Now that is the essence of humility. So he commits the representation of himself to another party. Now that other party, in this case man, sons of God, the other represents you, God, accurately. That is only possible because you, God, have invested yourself in them, right? In whom the requirement would be in them to die to themselves, their own ambitions, their own inclinations. So if one is to be represented in another, the other that is to represent him must die fully to his own identity, ambitions, and embrace the identity, the mandate, the will, the nature, the essence of the other that has sent him to represent him. God committed the, the, the representation and the presentation of himself to men. The lowly position of humility, characterized by obedience to the point of death of self within us, is absolutely vital if we are to accurately represent his glory and become his reputation in the earth. He fills us with his grace via his words spoken through his servants sent to us. So he does not just commit to us the responsibility of representing him without empowering us in the same to represent him. How does he do that? He does that via the word of God full of his essence called grace. It must be received in humility 
in us a humility which demands dying to self, dying to ambition, dying to our own inclinations, and to live up to the higher responsibility of representing God. That is why humility is so attracted or is so attractive to grace. Grace is attracted to humility because humility is the essence of divinity himself. Think about that. He did not, could, if he wanted to, um, showcase himself through any means because he's God and is limitless in power and in possibility. But he chose to subject himself, confine himself to an accurate representation of himself in another called men. So that is the height of God's humility. That is why to those to whom this mandate is committed to, re to fully receive the grace, God looks for equal humility in the man to die to himself to represent God who is his father to the world. Humility in us attracts grace when in us there is total death to anything that might stand in opposition to his desire for us to represent him completely. Now the ultimate expression of humility within us would then be the actual act of obedience on our part to his grace pregnant word. Grace attends our, hum our humble disposition and desire to do his will obediently. As we obey the resident grace within the word, which provides the medium of the reception of the divine essence in spirit, now visibly portrays that nature before men in terms of the divine character in ways that men might see and recognize it as God himself functioning. So the grace of God pregnant in the word, when we hear it, it comes to us. When we obey it, what we as men on earth begin to do is visibilize God to others in ways that others might look at us and clearly, unmistakably know that this behavior, this mindset portrayed before them in us is unmistakably akin to God our Father. But death in us is essential. For this to take place, humility expressed as obedience to the point of death to self is absolutely essential. It is pointless believing that one is humble and thus a candidate for qualifying for the reception of greater grace when, in fact, you don't have any inclination to obey God. The actual ultimate indication of humility, obedience. Okay? So, just in quick summary then, without humility, grace is inaccessible. Without grace, glory is impossible. Without glory, div divinity remains invisible. Costly and courageous obedience is the ultimate expression and evidence of humility, whose outcome of grace will manifest glory. Grace attends that humility and will manifest God's glory in an act of daring and courageous obedience to the Word of God. Amen. This is so vitally important for us to understand. For a moment, I just want to speak on the corporate effect and power of one's 
singular obedience. How important is your private individual obedience? I want to demonstrate to you that it has a corporate or a widespread effect beyond the immediacy of your private self, your private world. Our text is Romans chapter 5, verse 17 to 20. For if by the transgression of one, death reigned through one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of one, many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, the text is very clear here. Adam's personal disobedience brought unrighteousness and death upon many. For by the disobedience of one, many were made sinners. But, on the other hand, through the individual obedience of Jesus, he opened up a means by which many will be made righteous. So, through the obedience of one, many are made righteous. That's Jesus Christ. Through his singular obedience, his private obedience has corporate ramifications. So did Adam's private disobedience. Now, it affects a host of people, your obedience and or your disobedience. Achan's personal sin hampered the progression of a whole nation of Israel in Joshua chapter 7. Okay, you can read the details there. I don't want to get into that for now. In obeying, I want you to realize that you are not just acting privately but corporately. Refuse the temptation to disobey. Because you highly apprise the corporate state and welfare of the people and the community of saints that God has joined you to in your local household of faith, your clan, your tribe, or particular network, etc. Now, failure, let me illustrate this further, the how grave this is and how, how important this issue is. The scriptures demonstrate very clearly that failure to love God by not loving and obeying his word has deep implications for your attitude towards your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. I want to say it again. Your failure to love God by not loving and obeying his word has deep implications toward or for your attitude towards brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. I'll read the text in a moment. In short, this point stresses this fact. My private obedience or disobedience testifies to my love or hate for other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ and not just my love or hate for God himself. 
The text is 1 John chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. By this we know we love the children of God when we love God. That's clear enough. Okay, we, we, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. Simply stated, you cannot love God's children without first loving God himself. And observe, it says, his commandments. By this we know we love the children of God when we love God. And observe his commandments. So, we love the children of God, my other brothers and sisters, when I love God and obey his word. Verse 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So this text suggests that one does not love the body of Christ or the family of God, your brothers and sisters in Christ, when you demonstrate a lack of love for God by disobeying his word. Loving God in his word is not a personal private matter per se. Since disobedience to his commandments provide evidence of a lack of love for God and this disobedience adversely affects the community of saints to which you belong. Now, then to disobey is selfish. To disobey is an expression of self-centeredness, selfishness. You're only focused on you, yourself, and nobody else. And you're not realizing either the positive effects of your obedience or the negative effects of your disobedience upon a whole community of people. To obey will then require selflessness. In other words, humility. Disobedience then is an, indicate, an indication of pride because it places the I at the center, you at the center. Obedience indicates humility because it positions the corporate welfare of your brothers as your priority, even over your own inclinations, ambitions, and or comforts. Now, the letter I... In the center of the word pride stands tall and arrogant. If you take the word pride, the letter I is directly in the center, standing tall and arrogant. The I can become an H when you lay it down on its side. It must bend, bowing laterally to become an H, which then will denote humility. May the I in you and me bow low in self-humility, and receive greater grace through our obedience to God and His Word. God resists the proud, but He will give grace to the humble. Now, let me illustrate the effect of grace upon selfless, humble obedience that brings many into a new state of glory or personal obedience that will bring benefit or advantage to a corporate community outside of the person. Obviously, I want to begin with our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the classic example of this. Jesus was full of grace and truth, and he is the epitome of humility. He humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. That's Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8. Now note the text says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient. The King James Version of the Bible says he humbled himself and became 
obedient. In other words, by becoming obedient or he became obedient, it testified to his state of humility. The word become or, be, or becoming in these, in these verses is the Greek word ginomai, and it literally means to begin to be, that is, to come into existence or into a state, to come into a state. Uh, or it also means to have come into existence, or it means to simply be, to simply be. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient. It was a state that he, or a quality of existence that he entered into. For Jesus, you, uh, obedience was not an act, it was a lifestyle, it was a state of being, a state of existence. We cannot, in the present economy, in the present time, move in and out of the states of obedience and disobedience. Because if, if obedience evidences and expresses total humility, to disobey would then imply that I move into states of pride in disobedience. And that inconsistency uh, must not be the order for you and I today. So obedience is a state you come into. It's a state of being, a state of existence. It must be, it must be a constant state that we all seek to abide in and never move out from. This humility should be a permanent disposition by which you and I are characterized. Humility is a prerequisite to obedience. And it's also the proof. And the proof of humility is obedience. Okay? And I want to encourage you to maintain this, this disposition as an abiding state within your person. Now, obedience whose expression evidences humility. I want to say that again. Obedience whose expression evidences humility is a willingness to obey God without any concern for the preservation of security, provision, self-interest, etc. Disobedience then becomes an expression of pride, as I've said. For he who disobeys places, places his view and desire above that of God's. When God requires courageous acts of obedience, the natural and carnal mind perceive the associated cost as resulting in loss. So if you do the, the reckoning by human calculation, God asks you to do something extremely courageous that will, in your mind, cost you anything by natural standards. If you reckon it as a loss, you will disobey, or the potential to disobey is heightened when you deem the act of obedience as taking away from you something that you hold dear. And that will then be an indication of pride. The prideful, self-centered individual fails to comply with God's expectation simply because the need to preserve self and deal with the fear of the potential loss ranks higher than the necessary survival disposition. Sorry, it ranks higher as a necessary survival disposition than the need to resign oneself fully in total abandon to God's will. So why do we disobey when God asks us to obey to the point of death? 
asked us a courageous and difficult thing like he laid on his son to go to the cross. Why do we disobey? We, we disobey because we have a fear of potential loss. A loss we've calculated by natural standards. And that loss ranks higher as a survival disposition in us. And that's an orphan mentality, not a son mentality. It ranks higher as, an, as a survival disposition than the need to really just obey God without any thought of self-preservation. So I will encourage you and I to deal with the fear of potential loss from human reckoning. No man, when he obeys God, when the obedience to God costs him everything, actually loses anything, but he stands to gain everything. When you think you're going to lose anything through an act of obedience to God, little do you know that the act of obedience, which costs you everything, is actually the doorway through which you enter everything that God has earmarked for your life. From a human perspective, you might stand to lose much, but from a spiritual perspective, you gain all. Here's an encouraging text in this regard. Matthew 10, 37 and 38. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Here's the verse I love. He who has found his life will lose it. But he who has lost his life for my sake, he will find it. If you are prepared to lose things by an act of obedience, you will find your life in the process. Now Jesus obeyed by grace. His obedience in humility did not just recruit more grace unto himself. The actual act of obedience was made possible by the grace imparted to him itself. Now, there's, there's something about the power of grace I want to emphasize here. Grace received through the word of God is not only an impartation of the compositional a constituent and immaterial property within the Godhead as a spirit being. Much more than this, this grace is actually the principal power by which I can courageously obey a command of God, a command which might seem in the flesh to be very costly to me. Now, you might think that it would be impossible for you to obey a difficult command of God, but this is only because you view it naturally from a human perspective based on what you are humanly capable of doing or not doing as you reckon. But if you tap into and rely upon the grace you've received by hearing that word already, that same grace will be the source of empowerment meant to spur you on to obey that word. So when you hear the command, in the command is not only a command or a word from God. In that command or word is not only God's expectation for you to do. In it is also God's empowerment. So that you can go through with the action. It will not be you. If you really position yourself correctly, it will be you doing it by the very grace 
that you've received when you heard the word. Jesus' humility attracted greater grace to his person. It was really the grace attendant with his humble heart that was actually the means he employed to obey his Father's will for him to die on the cross. And I recall that in the Garden of Gethsemane, from the weakness of his humanity, he asked whether it was possible for the cup of suffering, the cross, uh, to be set aside from him. He said, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering pass me. But he quickly readjusted his position, saying to his father, not my will, but your will be done. Luke twenty-two, forty-two. Now he could only say this because grace within him arose to confront the matter of obedience to the point of death. Now, Hebrews, a scripture in Hebrews actually says this very, very plainly, that Jesus tasted death by the power of the grace of God. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. Listen carefully. But we do see him, that's Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now, it says, by grace he tasted death. By the reception of grace, he was able to go through with obedience unto death, even the death on the cross, because of he tapped into the power of the grace of God that was resident within his person as the word of God. Now, perhaps you are facing some requirement of God in your own life. Something God is expecting you to do that might seem so difficult in your human strength. When you heard that command of God, in that command is not just God's expectation, but God's empowering grace, which when you rely upon, will cause you to obey God daringly and courageously. So then to obey God is not hard at all. Eradicate the thought from your thinking that obedience to God is difficult. You must expunge and banish that thought. Don't entertain the, the position that God's word, God's commands are difficult to obey. You've got to start by extracting that position from out of your mentality. Banish that thinking from your mind. You can obey, not in your own strength. You can obey, obey the word of the Lord by the grace that he gives to you when he sounded forth his word to you. By that grace, I declare to you, you can obey. Here's also a very encouraging text. Deuteronomy chapter 30 from verse 8 to 11. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe his commands which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand and in the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your cattle and in the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord with your whole heart and soul. Verse 11 is important. It says, For the commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. 
It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to the heaven to get it for us and make it hear and make us hear it that we might observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and to make us hear it that we might observe it. But the word of God is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart that you might observe it. Note the first part of this verse in verse 11. It says, the command is not too difficult. It's not too hard to obey God's word. By grace, you can obey it. God will never ask you to do something which he will not enable you to carry it out in obedience. Once he sees that you are at least inclined toward doing the thing. The moment you position your spirit, soul and body and incline your whole being to please God through obedience, God will endow you with supernatural, graceful ability to execute the obedient intention, no matter how costly that obedient act is. He requires you to make the first step, though. At least be inclined towards it. Jesus said, take the cup of suffering when he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. But then he quickly said, but not my will, but thine will be done. The moment you even verbalize it, position it in your mind, I'm inclined, I want to, I want to do the will of the Lord. You will find added grace attend you to actually carry out the obedience thereof. First John chapter 5 and verse 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. Jesus prayed privately, which brought many people into sonship. So He obeyed privately, and His private obedience brought many people into sonship with His Father. Okay? Uh, Hebrews 2 verse 9b uh, to verse 10a again says that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And verse 10 says, for it was fitting for him for whom all things are and through whom are all things he might bring many sons unto glory. In other words, his private obedience paved the way for many other humans to come into the same economy of sons of God as he is a son of God. So his singular private obedience by the power of the grace of God brought many into the experience of that grace by the entrance into sonship. It is God's intentions that people everywhere experience his grace. As the scriptures indicate, grace must, must be spread to more and more people everywhere. You'll find this in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 15. For all things are for your sake, so that grace, which is spreading to more and more people, might cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. So the grace you've received through hearing the word, a word that requires you to obey God in a particular matter, when you obey that difficult command by the grace given to you, what seems difficult becomes easy, but as you obey, you open up a portal or conduit to, to bring many others in your sphere into the same economy of blessedness that you have come into by your act of obedience 
to the graceful word that you heard. And so as you obey, you say in your family, in your church, at your school, or in whatever environment or context you function, people in your environment become to know and to be received from you as a channel the grace of God that you received and you expressed through your obedient act. Through your obedient act, grace present within you will now begin to spread to people, more and more people, as the text says, everywhere. Now, also, honor towards God and spiritual fathers is expressed by obedience. If obedience is the evidence of humility, we can conclude then that humility is thus prerequisite to any desire to honor. So, if I honor God, I will obey His word. Right? If I honor God, I will obey His word. If obedience is expressive of humility, then I conclude for me to honor demands humility. Grace attends humility, and thus grace attends the one who honors another. To honor another means to elevate the other above yourself. Right? So we, we honor God, we honor our leaders, our spiritual fathers. In our minds, we esteem them as above us for functionality. Honor is an important thing. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 to 3 says the following, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it might be well with you and that you might live a long time in the earth. So verse 1 says, Obey your parents in the Lord. Now the phrase, in the Lord, is a reference primarily to spiritual parentage or spiritual fathers. Yes, most obvious, it does refer to natural biological parents as well, because this is a commentary on one of the commandments in the Ten Commandments in the Old Covenant, which says, honor your father um, and mother. Paul here says, honor your father or your parents in the Lord. Now, just listen, in Paul describing his spiritual fathering function over his over the Corinthian church, he used the same phrase in the Lord or in Christ. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4 and verse 17, in describing his, his fatherly function over Timothy, he says the following, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. So scripture must interpret scripture. So why do we say that? In Ephesians 6 verse 1, obey your parents in the Lord is a reference primarily to spiritual parents. Yes, inclusive of biological parents as well, but primarily spiritual parents because it uses the phrase in the Lord, a phrase which Paul would use in describing his spiritual fathering function over Timothy. So if we are to honor our parents, we must, our spiritual parents and natural parents, we are to obey. Obey them and honor your father and mother. So obedience is reflective of and evidence of honor. 
And we cannot obey if we're not humble. We cannot honor if we are not humble. Okay? Now, a quick, as we round up this broadcast, I want to remind you of what it really means to obey. The Hebrew, or rather the Greek term for obey is hupa, hupa kuyo. It's from the prefix hupo, which means under or beneath, and akuyo, which means to hear. So to obey is hupa akuyo, from hupo, which means go down or submerge or beneath, and akuyo, which means to hear. So to obey, hupa akuyo, means to hearken, means to listen to something, but to listen with stealth, stillness, and with great attention in order to give an answer or an obedient response. So to obey implies, listen carefully, the accurate hearing of the word in the first place, and having heard, you then consciously design an appropriate, obedient response to what you have heard. To obey implies attentive hearkening, attentive hearkening, compliance or submission to God's word. When you and I obey, we bring ourselves under the covering of what we hear from the one that we've heard, most often our spiritual father in the Lord. Now in the Greek, the word hupa kuyo, obey or obedience, also implies a willing submission to what is heard and to obey God irresistibly. In other words, <clears throat> there's a natural uh, proclivity to want to obey God when you hear the word. Not something you resist, but you obey God irresistibly. Now to obey is a willing to obey is to willingly subject, rather, yourself to the word of God contained within your spiritual father. By obedience, you bring yourself under the word. Remember the prefix hupo means to submerge or bring yourself under. This act of obedience brings to one blessings and promises attendant with the act of obedience. The word of God embedded within the spirit of your spiritual father provides you spiritual uh, covering. Okay, so as I've indicated, the literal meaning of obey obedience is to bring yourself under, upo, under what you have heard and from whom you have heard. So literally, when you hear the word and you obey it, you are covered. You're not covered by your spiritual father per se. You are covered by the word that he has brought to you. Right? The word covers you. Literally, the act of obeying that word is your spiritual covering. But your spiritual covering, that word has come through, one that God has positioned over your life, a spiritual father. It's really not the man that covers you. It's the word he carries in his spirit, which when communicated to you, you obey and you receive protection and immunity from all the schemes of the enemy. Amen. Now, biblically, sons who obeyed became the recipients of significant blessings, promises, breakthroughs, new levels of spiritual revelation of the nature and purposes of God, etc. But they got this not just for themselves. They got this also, um, uh, their private acts of obedience would also 
enhance the walk of their spiritual fathers. And in a later broadcast, I will demonstrate this from the scriptures. But also, it brought tremendous blessing upon their brothers and sisters with whom they associate. Their active and willing obedience brought their lives, brought to their lives protection, immunity from very concerted attempts by the enemy to derail their destiny and ultimately destroy them totally. God protected them when they obeyed. Grace will attend the humble person. Humility is expressed by obedience to God's word. We must seek to live in a culture of obedience unto death, no matter what the cost to us personally. As we do, grace is not just attracted to us, but through us and will benefit a host of others. Our obedience to God's word, vested in and through our spiritual fathers, will bring immunity and covering to us. It's the grace of God in the word of God that will cover you and empower you. In our next segment, we will examine how these principles play out in the life of Esther, a spiritual son to Mordecai, who functions as a spiritual father in the Lord. She obeyed courageously and attained immunity and covering of great grace, which worked mightily, not just in her, but through her and benefited an entire nation whose existence and divine purpose was preserved and held protected by her personal obedience, which was foundationed upon sincere humility before God and in honor of Mordecai's spiritual father, whom God placed over her life to guide and direct her through his word. I pray this teaching has been a blessing to you. I pray that you would resolve in your heart to come to a place of Great obedience as an expression of the humility that is within your heart. So may great grace and peace be your portion. The grace in the word that instructs you is the same grace that will empower you to obey the word. When you do, you express honor to God, honor to your spiritual fathers in the Lord. You express concern for your Brothers and sisters, your love for the body of Christ is evidenced by your personal acts of obedience. The grace given to you will begin to flow through you and bless all people around about you. So that, as the scripture says, grace is being spread to more and more people everywhere. I commend you to God and to the word of His grace that is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance amongst all the saints which are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Bless you. I love you. Bye-bye.